0: Bye-bye. Now, thanks again for the praise team leading us in worship. The song that we sang just before they came, hymn number 453 in our hymnals, was written by John Newton. What other song did he write? amazing grace. He actually wrote scores of hymns. So the words that you have there, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, written by John Newton. So John Newton, as most of you know, was a slave ship captain and uh, an atheist until the Lord the Spirit of God moved in him and convicted him of his sin. He became a believer and he became also a Baptist preacher. All God's people said, "It's <laughs> a little weak," but he did. He became a Baptist preacher and he spent the rest of his days preaching the Word of God and also writing hymns. And uh, he did write some uh, some short pamphlets and, and commentaries on some of the Word of God. So for those of you perhaps that are listening or watching via the Internet this morning, we do welcome you with our congregation. Turn with me to begin with to Matthew chapter 1. We're then going to Galatians chapter 3, and then we're going to finish in Hebrews chapter 2. This is what is called systematic theology, okay, where you... You don't exegete or you don't expose the word in so many senses as we do normally, but this is where you lift a verse. You can call it topical if you like, but really it's systematic theology where you build a case for the uh, focus of the message. And so this morning we're looking at salvation from sins, specifically justification. And we'll talk about that in the... In a moment. Look at verse uh, 21 of Matthew 1. We've read this for a number of weeks now. And she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So uh, it's the purpose for our Lord Jesus coming. And that's the only purpose. Remember that. It's the only purpose. He came. In fact, he said, Son of Man has come to seek and to save those that are lost. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3. And since we're going to be focused on justification this morning, look at verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of the transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through the angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have come or would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, condemned all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It's not given to everybody, to those that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Unless we are justified by faith, our sins are not forgiven. And that's been the overall uh, principle these past few weeks. How are our sins forgiven? Well, one of those components is justification. And justification is by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now go with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 2. So unless we are justified by faith, the writer here says, verse 1, Therefore we, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away, lest we fall away, lest we just say whatever. I'm saved, I don't need anything else. Don't need the church, don't need the word, don't need the people of God. I need the spirit of God, but anyway. For if the word spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken to us by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And that ends there with a question mark. So may God bless the reading of his Holy Word as we continue to look at the cradle and the cross and specifically salvation from our sins. So what is mightier? Talked about this for a couple of weeks now. The pen or the sword? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. It's your revelation to us. Jesus is the incarnate Word. He is the Word that was given, that was and is God. So reveal to us this morning the justice that you have to us that are sinners In Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So for the past several weeks, first slide if you would, uh, Brother Jeff, we've been asking the question, why did God choose words to communicate to the crown of his creation? A couple of weeks ago, we had this quote from Paul Tripp, God designed people with the need for counsel. And counsel is not a lone wolf entertainment. We don't do it to ourselves. We require, this morning, what I am doing is counseling with the Word of God. And we all need it. The preacher needs it. And others need it. Immediately, he writes, after, creating Adam and Eve, God begins to talk to them. He spoke the world into existence. We talked about this last Sunday. He knows they need truth which they will never discover on their own and that's the primary purpose for the Word of God. In order to make proper sense of who they are you need the truth and what they're created to do. You need the truth. He gave us His Word so that we may know Him So that we may know ourselves, the nature of our world, and how we are to live. Now, last Sunday in the introduction, we went back to Genesis 1, and I mentioned to you that in Genesis 1, God begins with speaking. In the beginning, God created, and he said, let there be light, and all of these other creative acts of his in those first few verses of the book of Genesis. Genesis. But only Adam and Eve, which he created singularly. He didn't create floods of fish or floods of humans, just Adam and Eve. He created with a statement of intent, which is found in verse 26 of chapter 1. Let us create man in our image. And I mentioned to you last Sunday morning that he that has no image... God, or his spirit, no image, and he who says we should not worship an image, because he has no image, created man in his image. What a God. Who we are and our purpose was not voiced from Adam and Eve's lips. It was voiced from the triune God. Remember that. The serpent, Lucifer, the old dragon, John calls him in the book of Revelation, distorted the voice of God, the words of God, and has been for years. Adam understood initially that he was made that he was the imago Dei. He was made in the image of God. The equal and absolute dignity of the human person as the image of God. Why did God create a single man or woman? Talked about this last week, so that we understand that any who destroys a single man or woman or boy or girl is regarded as if he destroyed all men. For all humanity bears the image of God. Whether we agree with them, like them or not, whether they hate God or not, we bear the image of God. So the the corollary of this is true as well. He that saves a man is regarded as if he saved All men. So enter the word made flesh. Next slide. Verse 14 of John 1. And the word became flesh. God enfleshed his word in his son. And we beheld He, he dwells, he dwelt among us, he dwells among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the monogenies of God. He's the only one that's like God. Now, we're made in God's image, but not in the incarnate fashion of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, full of grace and full of truth. So we've been looking at from the cradle to the cross. God gave to us in a word. Jesus, the name, his name, a Savior. And if we neglect such a good, beautiful gift from God the Father, then we do so at our own peril. No, we can certainly neglect it, but we do so at our own peril. And here's the thing. Here's the rub: God is no less essential, nor is he inescapable if we reject him. And if we believe him, doesn't change God's character one bit. You can't escape it. He's the inescapable, essential God. And so we have been looking at four words that highlight a different aspect of the sinner's need for salvation. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at propitiation which underscores the wrath of God upon sinners. This is our punishment placed on Christ. Last week we looked at redemption. The captivity we have to sin and our need to be purchased. And we're purchased by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. This morning we're going to look at justification. Our legal guilt before God. This is our pardon. And... In a week or so, we'll look at reconciliation, our enmity against God. And we're all enemies, regardless of whether we think it or not. The Bible says we are. Let God be true, and every man a liar, and our alienation from him. And when we are born again, then we are reconciled back to him. And this has to do with our position in Christ. Next slide. These four words don't flatter us. They describe and expose the magnitude of our need. And we are needy people, whether we think we are or not. We looked at the word propitiation. We looked at the word redemption. This morning we're going to look at justification. Now, we've done this quite a bit before. Several years ago now in the book, specifically in chapter three and four, th- chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Romans. Justification is the third word, and if propitiation focuses on God's wrath being satisfied in the cross, and redemption focuses on the plight of sinners from which the cross ransomed them, that's the negative aspect of our salvation. That's the subtraction. We needed, we had a plight that was sin. It needed to be taken off our to-do list. Then justification focuses on the positive attribute of Romans 5 1 and Romans 8 1. Romans 5 1 says, we have been justified by faith. And Romans 8 1 says, there is therefore Now, no condemnation in Jesus Christ. All of these words are acted in Jesus Christ. They're active. They're not just verbs. They're active in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of words today about justice. Oh, we hear them all the time now, don't we? Ah, you're being unjust. The entire legal system, we are told by some, is unjust. Well, of course there are portions of it that are unjust, because unjust sinners created the judicial system. And we never stop to think about that. But not all of it is unjust. And it goes back centuries. The word is often coupled with equity and privilege. And we're going to look at this in more detail when we pick up again in First Peter chapter 2. Now here's the thing. We do not want God's justice. If we we had God's justice without Christ, nary a sinner would ever be saved. You do not want God's justice. For those of us that know Jesus Christ, we have received Christ who received the Father's wrath and he received the Father's justice. Without Christ, you will receive the wrath and justice of the triune God. And it will be meted out, according to the word of God, by the Lamb of God. More than that blessed truth, We've received justification. A righteous God has declared me an unholy, unrighteous, vile, despicable, deserving of hell's sinner, the righteousness that is in his Son. All God's people said, amen, amen, Amen and amen. We could go home right now, but we're not. <laughs> Christians are folk. Now, a lot of folks call themselves Christians that are not. But Christians are folk that have been de- delivered. That's the word, the Greek word for saved. It's so- so, to be delivered. That have been delivered by Christ alone. We've been delivered by his grace alone, by faith alone. just read that in the book of Galatians. In response to the scriptures alone, justice was reserved for Jesus. We do not have to endure the justice of God. If we choose not to believe, not to receive the grace of God through faith alone, in the scriptures alone, through Jesus Christ alone, we will receive God's justice. And we don't want that. No sane individual, which teaches us a great deal about sinners. Sinners are insane. Insane. No sane person wants the justice of God. Next slide. God the Father judged us in Christ on the cross. And because He judged us in Christ, we are found righteous. That is, as if we had never sinned because he made him sin for us. Now, you talk about the love of God. It is bound up in God's justification. And Christ has already been judged for our sins as a substitute in place of our sin. And he's the only one we've looked at for a number of weeks now that can satisfy God the Father. So justification, if we were to find it, is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all sins and accepts us righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us. In other words, negatively, our sin... Weighed us down. Positively, Christ has, uh, uh, God the Father has pardoned us because of the work of Christ, and it's placed on our account. Christ's righteousness is placed to our good. It's been imputed—that's the theological term—and it's received by faith alone. The Book of Galatians, the Book of Romans, other places in the new testament as well now justification is the first component of salvation it is something that is done immediately once we are born again it is followed by sanctification which is more a process and that's a weak term i hate to use that term but for the lack of one a better one i will speak to that It's followed by sanctification in first peter we've been focused on in many cases sanctification Not so much during these series of sermons. We'll return to that when we come back to 1 Peter. The doctrine of justification as a pastor. Every pastor should preach on this. The doctrine of justification humbles the proud. God gives grace to the humble, Peter wrote. It strengthens the faint hearted. It gives assurance to those that are fearful. It encourages the weak, and it motivates self-sacrificing law. The teaching of justification. The word doctrine just means teaching. The teaching of justification. When we deny this teaching, we deny the very heart and power of the gospel. There is no gospel without justification. And one of the great principles of the Reformation was the rediscovery, not the discovery, but the rediscovery of justification. The church had long lost the understanding of being made right with God. And so you had literally hundreds of thousands of people fearful that they had no salvation because the Catholic Church imposed upon them. A, uh, the, the penances that were required of them, and also the indulgences that were required of them. And Luther had it up to here with that. And so Luther wrote after he was converted. Now, Luther was one of the, a hyper-religious man. He was a monk, an Augustinian monk. A high, he was a Pharisee, if you please. And Luther wrote after his conversion... Talking about justification, he said, it is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. And then Calvin, who placed systematically, he took the works of Luther and Melanchthon and others and set them in order. We wouldn't have a Baptist faith and message, perhaps, without John Calvin, like it or not. Calvin said, justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. So it is vital to our understanding. We, ha- unless we are justified, we do not have forgiveness. Thankfully, our Lord has done this. And here's the thing. We'll talk about reconciliation later. Justification means that only the righteous can be reconciled to the Trinity. So when I hear people say, well, you talk too much about words. Only the righteous can be reconciled to the Trinity. I'm reconciled because I'm righteous made righteous in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and if you're born again thank the Lord you are too now over these next remaining minutes may the Lord add to our hearing he that has ears to hear let him hear may the Lord bring a theological clarity to this doctrine for the sake of his own glory and for the good of the Flat Creek family. This is for our good. So, another theological term. Don't need to get wrapped up in this. The order salutis. This is basically the order of salvation. Okay? This is in the mind of God. This was determined by study. Thankfully, these words... Propitiation, redemption, justification, reconciliation were in God's mind and they were manifest in in and through the, uh, the incarnation. This is the active part. In the cradle, the innocent and Christ was the only purely innocent, holy, righteous child ever. Ever. In the cradle lay the one that would bring about actively our forgiveness. He would bring about actively the satisfaction of his Father. He would bring about actively the substitution for our sins. He would actively be have God's, his father's wrath poured out on him, he would actively redeem us through the shedding of his blood, and he actively imputes his righteousness to us and reconciles us. Only the incarnate one, the Savior, can do that. In this order, propitiation occurs first. Because until God's wrath is appeased and his love finds a way to avert his anger, there can be no salvation. The entire book of Hebrews, if we were to generically sum it up, would cover this. The blood of bulls and goats was insufficient. My blood, your blood, would be insufficient. Secondly, once God's holy love is satisfied, and it must be satisfied, our salvation requires redemption by a Redeemer. This is the negative aspect, the subtraction portion of our salvation, is there's a price that must be paid to secure redemption. We have been rescued from the grim captivity of our sin and our guilt uh, this should be the priceless blood that's the rice, not riceless love, uh, riceless blood, but the priceless blood of Jesus. The third thing, justification is the positive side of our redemption. God has given us gifts, and this is one of those great gifts. Salvation is a gift. We do nothing to earn it. It's gift. Forgiveness from our sins takes place because of four things. Our liability for punishment is removed in Christ. We do not fear the wrath of God any longer. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Secondly, We've been redeemed by Christ, and because we have our debts, our sin debt has been canceled in some supernatural way, been removed by the blood of Jesus. Thirdly, we're justified because Christ confers on us His righteousness. Now, to be sure, as I look about this congregation this morning, those of you that know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. That's what I have as being born again. But to be sure, many, many times, probably every day, we don't live like we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. doesn't matter. The Bible says that his righteousness has been accorded to us, and because it has, We can go and approach God. Before this, no. Matters not how many many prayers an unsaved person prays. Until they are ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, they don't approach God. Christ makes it possible to approach God the Father. That's why the doctrine of Christ, we call this reconciliation, this is why the doctrine of Christ is so vital, and it's why so many people fear elevating Christ to being who he actually is, the God-man, God the Son. Next slide. R.T. Beckwith, who was a contemporary, in fact, he was a student of uh, Jim Packer, wrote, Justification by faith appears to us, as it does to all evangelicals, to be the heart and hub, the paradigm and essence of the whole economy of God's saving grace. Like Atlas, it bears a world on its shoulders, the entire knowledge of God's love in Christ towards sinners. Well, I mentioned just a moment ago, when you talk about the love of God, you talk about justification. Now, we don't think of that, do we? But that is the truth of the gospel. Now, the New Testament echoes this time and again. Go with me to Romans chapter 4. Just read a couple of these this morning. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our father, verse 1, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but he can't boast about it before God, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? It say, uh, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. This goes back to Romans chapter 3. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, that's me, the ungodly, that's me, that's you. His faith is accounted for righteousness, justified by faith, accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes, as a word again, imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, this is Psalm 32, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So just one mention. And since we were in uh, Galatians a few moments ago, let's go to Galatians 2. This will be the only other one we will look at. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians is a small book of Romans. Not less important, but a smaller version. Verse 16, uh, verse 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have been delivered, uh, believed rather in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh Shall be justified. If you remember when we started this series of messages, we went back and looked at the law of God. And I mentioned to you then that the law of God is cold. The law of God has no mercy. The law of God has no grace. The law of God has no love. It is the presentation of the character of God. And only through the words of God and through the person of God in Jesus Christ do these things matter. And that's why there's no justification in the law. Now the law we read earlier in Galatians chapter 3 was our schoolmaster, our tutor, to bring us to Christ. And the New Testament, uh, it echoes this time and again, all the way through the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul. We'll see it in the writings of Peter as well. These texts are stark. They're not complex. They're stark and they are convicting. We're not saved by law, but by faith. We're not saved by any righteous acts, but by God's mercy. We're not saved by any works, but grace. We're not called to cooperate with God. We're called to reject our self-righteous bent towards self-justification And choose between two mutually exclusive ways. His way. Narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. Or our way. And broad is the way that leads to destruction. And our faith has no value without the person of Christ. John Stott wrote, Faith is the eye that looks to Christ. It's the hand that lays hold to him. It's the mouth that drinks the water of life. And the faith doesn't save us. Faith in Christ alone saves us. Thomas Cranmer, one of the principal English reformers, wrote, Justification by faith alone advances the true glory of Christ and beats down the vainglory of man. Next slide. It humbles us because of the work of Jesus Christ. Carl Barth Barth would write, Thus man is justified through God's grace alone, Man achieves nothing. There is no human activity. Rather man simply submits to the justification of God. He does not do works. He believes. This is the God that loves us to the point that we are born again. Let's look at one of the gospels. Let's go to Luke 7. Well, we hear all about this, but Jesus didn't really. Tell you. Well, yeah, he did. He did. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says, which was first been told to us by a Lord, and then by those that heard it. So yes, he did. Like people saying, well, Jesus never talked about. He never said there couldn't be gay marriage. Oh, yes, he did. Matthew chapter 19 and the subsequent chapters in the Synoptic Gospels. He absolutely did. He said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his what? Cleave unto his what? Wife. So He absolutely did. Now, in this particular chapter, uh, look at verse 24. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitude concerning John. This is Jesus. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you, what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in the king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send you a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is none greater, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors, even the great sinners, remember now, Pharisees and scribes considered tax collectors, and we know that Matthew was one of them. Even the great sinners justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him, not having been baptized by John. Now, there is a, the Lord could be very Convicting, but he, he could also at times be snarky. You know what snarky means? He could also ridicule, and he ridicules in this passage. What did you go out to see? Verse 25, a man clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in the king's courts. That is a ridicule of Herod Antipas, who took the life of John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus would later call him Herod the Fox. So it's amazing what happens when you read the Word of God. I like the Word of God because God never, He never does this, He never says this. (laughs) And it's apparent many, many times that most people have not read, or at least they've only read what they want to read. What I want you to see here is that every sinner who heard Christ's teaching justified God, and that means they acknowledged that God's way was right. Now, they followed the baptism of John, and in doing so, John said, I am the one that paves the way for the coming of the Lamb of God. But in verse 30, the Pharisees and scribes rejected God's will for themselves. They chose the wrong way. So they did not justify the teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, we quoted Beckwith just a few slides ago who was a student of Packer, and Packer said this. He said, justification is God's gracious work of bestowing upon the guilty. That's all these folks here this morning. That's all you folks listening or watching via the internet. It's God's gracious way of bestowing upon the guilty sinners a justified justification. Acquitting them in the court of heaven without prejudice to his justice as the judge. We don't want God's justice. Absolutely do not. We want his acquittal. That's had in Jesus Christ. When he justifies sinners, He's not declaring bad people good. He's not saying that we're not sinners. He states that we are legally righteous as if we had lived the law to perfection. And we haven't. We know that. We have not lived the law to perfection. That we are free from any liability because we broke the law of God. Because Christ bore the penalty, he became the curse for us demanded by the law of God. What a Savior. You will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. What a God we serve. Next slide. Christ, the propitiatory sacrifice that satisfied the Father, he paid our ransom with his blood. The Puritan Richard Hooker wrote, God doth justify the believing man, yet not for the worthiness of his belief, Our belief doesn't save, Jesus saves. But for his worthiness, who is believed. Now there's another component as to all of these, there's another component to justification. One of the great promises, and we'll see this, uh, we we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago looking at reconciliation, we'll see it again. Because we are justified in Christ, we are now part of the universal people of God. He will save his people from their sins. Many of you, most of you this morning, know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. I hope and pray that all of you do. But one thing is for sure, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we share in and having the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And the church needs to celebrate that. We can't celebrate it sitting at home. We can't celebrate it necessarily sitting in the car. We celebrate it when we come together as the people of God. We are the true spiritual children of Abraham. Taught this in Romans 4 and also in the book of Galatians. Now, we read this portion this morning, Galatians 3, 21 through 29. We're not going to go back over that. But Christ gave the church to himself by dying on the cross. Ephesians 5 speaks to this. And while justification is by faith alone, it is never a faith that is alone. Part of... The responsibility and the gifts that God has given to me is to preach the unadulterated Word of God, which I am doing this morning. I have done now for the first part of March a long time, 28 years, 27, 28 years, long time. I was a young man with no gray hair when I came here, about 30 pounds lighter probably or so, depending on the day. I want to leave you with this this morning. I guess 200 years ago, 175, 200 years ago now, in our country, our great country, men and women made it across the Appalachian Mountains through Kentucky and Tennessee and Ohio, on into Missouri, uh, Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, the Great Plains. Um, had several time we, Rob and I were with Mike and Sheila. We drove across East Montana and uh, Eastern Wyoming. And a lot of, you get out of the mountains and then it, everything descends to the plains. I remember several years ago on travel being in the state of Nebraska and Oklahoma and just flat, just flat. One of the great fears that the pioneers had during the migration across our great land were, were Prairie fires generally started by lightning. And so when they built their homes, one of the things that they would do is that they would burn all the grass. (laughs) We would never do this this morning. Have you seen Joe's house? What is all that black smudge he's got? No, it's not green. Something's wrong. But see, they're a lot smarter than we are. So they burned all the grass around the house. And sometimes this went out a half a mile because the prairie fires spread rapidly. And so there was no vegetation, no trees, no grass, just good old American dirt. And they did this because the fires would rage and rage intensely And the fires, if they came up to that border where there was nothing, no vegetation, the fires would stop. They would burn out. Do this today with forest fires. Probably have done it for hundreds of years. Forest fires. The scripture warns us that the cross is the only safe place to avoid the coming fiery judgment that will one day engulf the world. We find this in 2 Thessalonians. We find it in 2 Peter. We'll cover it in 2 Peter. The cross is the first place that God's judgment has already been. I have no fear of judgment because Christ bore the judgment on the cross. God burned all the grass and placed the sin squarely on the shoulders of his son. In fact, we learn, 2 Corinthians, that God was in Christ when this happened. Believers are safe from the wrath of God because the justice of God was placed on Christ on the cross this beautiful little innocent holy righteous child that matured into a young man a young carpenter who taught strong young man that was crucified because god burned all the grass so that you and i might survive that's justification we are forgiven because of justification. Justification doesn't mean that God ignores sin, He doesn't. It leans on His judging of Christ from the cross. No flame can destroy what God has bought with His blood. This means that our sins are forgiven. But more than that, our sins have been paid for. Not only forgiven, they've been paid for in full. And we have been justified by grace through faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us again, I pray, for taking all of this great work that you acted out in your Son for granted. May we every day, Father, preach the gospel to ourselves. We thank you for these that are here. We thank you for their attention, and we pray if there is any here this morning that has not received Christ as Savior, that they be reminded that their sins are not forgiven until they call out to him in salvation. Call to a Savior that is not only willing to say, but is able to say. For believers... Oh God, make this real to us today and remind us that you have saved us by the person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The close to our opportunity to worship this morning is simple. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we can't save you, but the good news is this one that we've been preaching about now for years, but especially this morning, can and will save you. He loves you. He loves you more than you love yourself. He loved not his life even unto death the Bible said, and he did that for you and for me. So as we sing this morning, if you would make your way out of the pew, we can take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can leave here this morning justified, made righteous in Jesus Christ. As a child of God, perhaps you're here this morning. You need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. You know you're born again and unite with this church. We encourage you to make that decision today and also unite with us, either by statement of faith or transfer of letter. We ask that you consider that today as a believer. Our prayer is that we never forget these great truths. We will look at reconciliation yet again because it is the result of all of these words. And thank God that we have been reconciled back him and to each other. What number, Brother Mike?